up, everyone? You're listening to the Andrew Alert podcast, which is the recording of our live show, Andrew Alert. You can now listen at your leisure and at your convenience. If you're new here on Andrew Alert, this is where Renee and I, your hosts, and sometimes a guest, analyze, break down, and discuss different topics each week anthropologically. Enjoy. Hey, Bulls, you're listening to Bulls Radio, WUSF 89.7. HD3 Tampa, 1620 AM on campus, and streaming worldwide at bullsradio.org. You're in for a treat because today, right now, at this very moment, you're listening to Anthro Alert, the show about anthropology and why it matters. Each week on Anthro Alert, we'll discuss how anthropology is relevant, and over time, we'll feature various guests from the Department of Anthropology here at USF to discuss their research and have them weigh in on everyday topics or current events. My name is Renee and as always I'm Spencer and we believe this is a good opportunity for us as anthropologists or soon-to-be anthropologists to better connect with the USF community and raise awareness of the value of an anthropological perspective and as we do before each show we just like to say that the statements that we make the things that we talk about and the opinions we express on Anthro Alert are are exactly that. They are our own opinions and they may not necessarily be representative of anthropology as a discipline, anthropology as a career, the University of South Florida, uh, or um, or student government. Mm -hmm. All those stakeholders. <laughs> so on today's show we have an MA and PH student that's in the department. Um, she is looking at uh, fan fiction and how it correlates with sexual education and sexual knowledge um, of teenagers. Donna, you want to introduce yourself? Uh, hi, as he said, I'm Donna Barth. I'm an MA MPH studying fan fiction. Alright, so we're just going to hop in with some questions. We're just going to get this discussion started. And uh, about 10 or 15 minutes, we're going to jump into a music, a music break. So, Donna, um, why don't we first uh, start our discussion with defining a few terms? We usually do this um, when people have terms in the research that that may be uh, confusing for for some of our listeners that either aren't in anthropology or aren't uh, familiar with the topic that we're talking about. So, let's start with popular culture and, and fan fiction. How do you define those, like personally or in um, in the context of of your research? Pop culture, I don't tend to think about too much. Uh, it is what it is, and I don't try to define it. But it, uh, if I were to try, I would say that pop culture is those things that exist now, which are part of the larger consciousness in our society. Mm -hmm. And fan fiction is also difficult to define, but easier for me because I've spent a lot of time looking at it and asking myself what it is. Uh, the technical definition of fan fiction is fiction which is written by fans, which mm. is, of course, a particularly useless statement. <laughs> but in general, it means fiction using established literary or TV, movie, events and characters written by amateurs who are not getting paid and therefore not getting sued. Mm. So is that, a, is that a real big issue in fan fiction, if you're a professional fan fiction writer is, is suing something that commonly happens, or how does, how does that work? Like, 
Uh, it is a big problem, and that is where a lot of the research in fanfiction is right now, mm -hmm. is the legal issues. Mm -hmm. uh, because it's kind of on that line between legal because it is transformative, it takes something and makes it into something new, mm. and kind of copyright infringement. And a lot of it comes down to the particular authors. Uh, some have no problem with fanfiction. J.K. Rowling does not care, is thrilled by people getting into writing whether or not using her characters. However, George R. R. Martin has stated unequivocally that he does not want people using his books as the basis for fanfiction. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. So, in your studies of fan fiction, or, or, or in your research, is there any specific like movies or TV shows or, or book universes that you specifically look at? Uh, I tend to be a bit of an equal opportunity. I tend to stick with things that I have at least some knowledge of before. Okay. Otherwise, it gets a bit difficult to understand the line between what the author is making up for the fiction and what actually comes from the canon. Mm. Renee, what do you think about all this? Well, when I first came across fan fiction, uh, I think with, with some Harry Potter stuff that I I'd stumbled stumbled upon on the internet, and uh, they had like an interesting take on on one of the lesser known characters, and, and, uh, and then I then I started to realize, oh, there's like a whole uh, underground industry of fans writing stories that they prefer to see the characters that they care about. Uh, participate in, and then you know you heard Donna mention earlier the uh, the legal aspect to it, and then so, so that's interesting to me because it certainly is a copyright issue and there's a legal issue, and um, it's also like if you're like say this is something that's interesting to me is if you're a fan fiction writer and then you write a story and hey that story is actually pretty good and pretty interesting, and then the owners of that um, intellectual property of the, those characters of those of those events. Um, that you featured in your fan fiction writing, like if 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 that's good enough, then they can turn that into a uh, like something that they own and they can monetize. That's oh, you mean they can like reverse sort of like copyright your story? So if you wrote fan fiction that they think is pretty good, they can make money off of it. Yeah, just think about yeah. like for I example, about that. and we're kind of getting off track, but like think about like Star Wars and like all the different stories that that kind of came from that and. And a lot of it was and licensed. Sanctioned, yeah. 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 I'm exactly. not. I'm not sure if this is considered fan fiction, but uh, what I think like a year ago, there's popularity where they did they merged uh, Shakespeare, Shakespeare books with Star Wars uh, yeah. movies. Does anybody? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Absolutely. So is that considered fan fiction? It's not. Or is that something different? It is mass published okay and therefore it made money which means they must have come under some agreement with okay Lucas so there's some there are some copyright uh, negotiations there. yeah if okay. you're going to make money off of it then it's generally not considered fan fiction okay which is actually a problem because uh i think about a year or two ago um people <coughs> found that the fan fiction that they had written was being sold under uh ebooks they'd been stolen from Oh, really? Yeah. Wow, okay. Which is an ethical problem for them, and also for the people who did it. So, if you write a fan fiction story, and it becomes popular, maybe, like, on the internet, to the point where somebody is willing to publish it for money, it no longer becomes fan fiction? It is still fan fiction, because otherwise the people who 
originated the characters, the authors, the TV shows, can sue you. So okay. the basic disclaimer is that I do not own these things. I am not making money off of them. Therefore, you hopefully will not sue me. Okay. Because that line is very fuzzy. So just, I like the universe you created. This is some stuff I made up in my mind and I just want to write it down. Okay. Interesting. So, um, we can take that natural pause in the in the conversation and transition into our first music break. So we will be back after some music. All right, you're listening to Anthro Alert on Bulls Radio, WUSF 89.7, HD3 Tampa, 1620 AM on campus, and streaming worldwide at bullsradio.org. This is Anthro Alert. You can find us on the web at anthroalert.com and you can send us all sorts of questions and you can look at what we do with the show and it's it's a it's fun it's just a fun website <laughs> all right so we're, we're talking about fan fiction and sexual health sexual education mm-hmm. uh, for teenagers today with Donna Barth yep um, so let's uh, let's continue yeah so before the music break we broke down popular culture and fan fiction talked about some of the copyright and legal issues and so now we'll dive more specifically into your research Donna so we talked broadly about fan fiction but what is what does all of this have to do with sexual health education for for teenagers well in this country we have variable laws for sex education in schools some places have very good comprehensive or uh, broad sex education and some have uh, little to know so in Florida we have you know, abstinence only. And some schools do that, and sometimes they don't really do much. And I grew up in Florida. We never had any sex education. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I had to wonder, where are teenagers getting their sex education? Now, the easy answer is from the internet, because we have the internet now. Mm-hmm. And we have, of course, internet pornography. Mm-hmm. But fan fiction is another way that can uh, connect to sex education because it is a medium that is written uh, not only by teens but a lot of them are teenagers who may or may not know anything so they read and they write and it's not monitored mm-hmm. there is no law or even guideline that tells them when something is anatomically correct mm-hmm. when it is socially correct mm. okay and so, I guess you're, I guess you're saying that you know when, when there is no formal sexual education in schools, perhaps um, when kids are left to or teenagers are left to their own devices, there can be some misconceptions in what they write and then publish to what other teenagers may read, mm-hmm. and then I guess a spiraling snowball effect from there. It's a lovely cycle. <laughs> okay, so how did you how did you get interested in this research to, to begin with? Well, I'd known about fan fiction for a, a little while mm-hmm. through various media, but I kind of came up with this idea in my first year of grad school when I was taking Dr. Romero Daz's reproductive health course, mm-hmm. and we read an article, I believe the name of it was The String of This One Story by Mark Isola, mm-hmm. and it was about a movement in the 80s in gay erotica magazines that they published and the movement was publishers would start asking authors 
to include information on safe sex or the explicit use of condoms in their stories as a way of raising awareness for safe sex practices and AIDS in that time. And I thought, well, Gay Erotica Magazines, it's a place where you can discuss and write about explicit information just like you can in fan fiction, and mm -hmm. do. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if there was any correlation between the two. Okay. Okay. Now, now that's that's real interesting. Now, now this is uh, this is your your thesis topic. It is. What what do like the methods? What do these methods look like for you? So, like, what are your what do you anticipate for your research methods? I have a couple things planned. Uh, the first one is, I am provisionally partnering with AO3, which is one of the major archive sites for fanfiction online, so it's archive of our own. And they have an enormous amount of fanfiction cataloged on there, and it's cataloged by various tags. So one of the first things that I want to do is go on there and see just pure numbers, how many uh, explicit, look at some of the tags for safe sex, um, things like that. And then I'd like to actually pull out a couple of the works and do a content analysis on them. And then the meat of the whole thing is I would like to distribute a survey through that site and then possibly interview some of the people who took the survey as well about their experiences. Yeah. Now, I, personally, like I, I mean, you, you, you both probably fully understand this, but uh, I, I am rather ignorant. Um, wh what would a content analysis entail? Uh, a content analysis can be a couple things, but that's when you go through a piece of literature or even an interview and you just code it by words that come up that you're looking for. So uh, if somebody is, or multiple people are repeating particular information about sex or discussing condoms explicitly, that is part of coding and that's part of content analysis. Okay, so if you're so you're partnering with this with this archives website particularly, mm -hmm. um, are you planning on talking to any teenagers specifically? Maybe teenagers that are reading fan fiction, or maybe even some that are writing fan fiction. And and how do you sort of um, broach conversations about sexual education that can be um, sort of a, a touchy subject, especially if it's a teenager? Absolutely. Um, since I will be recruiting through the archive, I did not want to poke the beehive that is the IRB too much. Mm -hmm. So my aim is to target uh, people between the ages of 16 and 25. Okay. So that will include some teenagers and some people who spent their adolescence reading and writing fan fiction as well. Okay. Well, just real quick, what was the IRB? The IRB is the uh, Institutional Review Board that looks at all your proposals and decides whether they are ethically sound. Mm. Thanks. Have you experienced any hang-ups with the IRB in no. regards to sexual education? Not yet. I have okay. not put my proposal through the IRB yet. I've mm. just been um, discussing it with my advisors a lot to see where exactly what kind of wiggle room I can get because I do not want to uh, step on any ethical toes, as it were. Right. So you probably haven't started any like participant observation or anything yet, have you? Not for this particular. Um, I 
did spend my time in Dr. Jackson's research methods class looking at a different archive called fanfiction.net and talking to some of the people in there, doing a little participant observation on their discussion threads and talking to people. Although on there, anonymity becomes a problem because even if I specifically want to talk to people who are over the age of consent, it's difficult to tell whether they actually are on the internet. Uh, yeah, that's true. I guess the internet does bring in a whole other set of issues as far as IRB is concerned. Absolutely. <laughs> and informed consent, I guess. You, know, um, you can say a lot of things on the internet that you wouldn't necessarily say in person. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so how do, you, how do you plan to evaluate whether explicit fanfiction is indeed a source of, of sex education with teenagers? Like, how do you, how are you going to, I guess, establish what impact it has on their sexual education? And it's definitely a difficult question, that. Uh, and part of this is it's more exploratory. Okay. So I'm not going to go out there and say that kids between the ages of 16 and 18 learn 20% of their sexual information from fan fiction. Okay. But I can go on there and talk to them about how they got into fan fiction, um, how they write about sex, how they read about sex, mm -hmm. and whether fan fiction has impacted their attitudes and behaviors towards sex, which should be a fun conversation with teenagers. Yeah, I imagine there's going to be some, some awkward moments in those conversations. Yeah. Yeah, that, that can be almost, um, like we were mentioning, um, that could be almost very somewhat ethical. Mm -hmm. Actually, I just just popped in my mind, like, what you know, what's the parent's role in, in all of this? As, as far as, like, sexual education, whether their teenagers are reading fan fiction and things like that, have you... Have you thought about any any questions regarding like how parents fit into this? Uh, I've been mostly focusing on the teenagers. Um, I do know some parents who know about fanfiction, although there are a lot out there who don't, mm -hmm. because everyone now has a smartphone or a laptop. It's much easier to access to these types of things without mm -hmm. uh, parental knowledge, mm -hmm. or at least full parental knowledge. So they might know that fanfiction includes talking about Harry and Hermione going off on adventures, but they might not know those adventures have um, other consequences. Sure. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, Renee, what do you think about all this? Well, it, it's, to me, like, the interesting thing uh, regarding, like, the, the parental involvement is, um, you know, so are the teens, like, are the kids, or, or the youth, whoever, look <laughs> looking at, you know, reading fan fiction, this sexually explicit fan fiction, um, like, a, a, how aware are the parents? Um, so we were talking earlier about the role of sexual education in schools. Mm -hmm. And so let's just say that if, if, if the kids are going to a school that are offering a less than comprehensive sexual health education curriculum, um, what role do the parents have? And I can make assumptions, mm -hmm. to just just to generalize. I mean, huge assumptions. Um, if if the schools are not offering a comprehensive curriculum, then I would assume that probably most kids are 
I mean, I really, I mean, I don't, I don't have data, so I'm just saying. Most kids maybe are not having those conversations with their parents. Right. And so if, if they're looking at the fan fiction, and this is the whole point of Donna's research, is mm -hmm. to determine what role that fan fiction has in shaping the values um, that these kids will develop mm -hmm. for their own sexual health and well-being. Mm -hmm. um, and and ha does that happen like in a vacuum? like without parental influence, parental involvement, or ro what role does like um, you know, the, the upbringing and the, the cultural community, you know, the school and the church and uh, the state. So, mm -hmm. so those, are, those are things that I think would, would have to be addressed in some way. Absolutely, and I'm not really looking at that parent-child relationship, but it is an interesting point. Um, Especially because in this society we do have uh, something of a taboo against talking about sex, mm -hmm. which I think drives fan fiction further underground because it is associated with explicit material. Mm. Oh, and and especially like if there are kids writing it, and then like you, if you're an adult and you're like, oh, I can't believe kids are you know pure and innocent. You're like, oh, they can't be writing this stuff. Yeah, I've seen some very surprised parents before. <laughs> So, do you think teen? So, are in your in your opinion, Donna, are teens reading fan fiction and thereby being exposed to sexual content, which is then, you know, influencing what kind of opinions they have on sex and sexual intercourse, or are they explicitly going to fan fiction because they know it's explicit and seeking some sort of like education or or something on like my school's not teaching me, you know, I don't, you know, what is, what is sex? I think there is probably a combination out there. I think a lot of people who get into fan fiction very young, um, probably that's uh, one of the first places they maybe learn about sex in mm. more than a disease and pregnancy type of manner. Okay. Um, I would say that fan fiction allows for a lot of breadth in what people are looking for, and I have uh, talked to people before who said that fan fiction was an excellent way to discover things about themselves. So it helps kids who maybe don't fit the normal mold. Mm. Okay, yeah, I didn't think about that aspect of it. There's a lot of, uh, I mean, in mainstream media, there is pretty much the expectation of heteronormativity mm. in all ways and that is changing to a degree but in fan fiction there are no you know media oversight problems so mm. you can talk about being trans being gay um a lot of things like that mm. okay yeah because um often they're left out of the conversation or, or uh, disregarded so yeah mm -hmm. that, it, that's a good um, that I hadn't even see I hadn't even considered I'm just yeah I haven't thought about that either. So I'm, so, <laughs> I'm so naive <laughs> you're so innocent yeah. <laughs> that's what this program is for so it's inter it's interesting that you bring up sort of larger media and like internet and and TV uh, and stuff so what impact do you think fan fiction is having in sexual education of teenagers when you know there's potential massive potential exposure to explicit material now on the internet or even TV um, 
nowadays. So how do you think fan fiction is is playing within that? Um, it's difficult to say to a point mm -hmm. um, because it is on that edge between regular fiction and it's you know non-sexual or sexual to the point that movies in this day and age are and pornography. Mm -hmm. It can encompass both. Okay. There, like there's, cer there's certainly that gap that needs to be filled. It seems like there's a lot of need for research in this area. So, so personal story, right? We get personal here in Anthrolder, but like as like as a kid, uh, teenager, or, or I don't even know what age this is supposed to happen. Like I don't remember any sort of sexual health education in my school. Mm. Um, I also don't remember having this conversation with my parents. Mm. Um, so I'm thinking, well, who did I talk to about this stuff? And I, I. Like I cannot actually remember. Part of it is just my memory being faulty from you know who knows how many concussions I had. But um, back to where I was going. Mm. Right, speaking of concussions, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Um, oh, uh, like later on when I was in college, and then being exposed to a lot of actual you know body positive um, uh, sexual health education. That I was oh wow like I'm actually like. Where was this information X number of years ago when I was, um, like, when I was a kid? And then also, like, starting to hear, like, radio shows or, or conversations about sexual health on, uh, in popular culture. And so the one that I'm referring to is uh, Loveline, which mm -hmm. is uh, not a show anymore, but that was, like, with Dr. Drew and um, Dr. Drew Pinsky, celebrity doctor, who, uh, whatever. And... Uh, <laughs> You know Adam Carolla and a bunch of other guest star hosts, and, and uh, for me that was like that, that's where I was introduced to a lot of things that I normally would not have been introduced to, hmm. um, that I was able to learn about on my own. I imagine most teenagers learn about this type of stuff from their friends, right? Yeah, and there are a lot of peer groups who are on fan fiction, so the anonymity of the internet only goes so far when you're sharing mm -hmm. your fan fiction with your friends. Gotcha, yeah. Which at least increases the uh, social network support Yeah. in the real world as well. Yeah, there's a whole lot of complications when you bring in the internet and anonymity and, and that kind of thing. But anyway, we're going to transition back into a music break. And then when we come back, we'll wrap up our conversation on sexual education and fan fiction and talk to Donna a little bit about her future and what she plans to do after she graduates. And stay tuned. Hey Bulls, you're listening. You're listening to Bulls Radio WUSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa, 16:20 a.m. on campus, and streaming worldwide at bullsradio.org. This is Anthro Alert. You, again, you can you can listen to us now, or, right? Because you're listening to us, or on uh, you can find us on our website anthroalert.com. Today we're talking about fan fiction. Uh, today our guest is Donna Barth, and we're talking about fan fiction. So the stories that fans write about the characters that they love and care about, um, at, and they write these stories basically just to explore the characters and to tell stories that they want to see, that they are interested in. And oftentimes, some of these stories have, uh, have, have sexual con content. And so how does that influence how adolescents, how teenagers learn about uh, their sexual health, you know, what role does this have in, in educating kids about uh, sex? Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so we've we've kind of talked about that for the past forty-ish minutes. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So. Yeah. So I think we're going to transition the conversation um, away from your research and just into life in general for a little bit to wrap up the show. Um, since this is an applied anthropology program, we always are interested in, in how students use their research um, in a broad sense and what they plan to do after they graduate. You're actually our first MA and PH student, so that's exciting. We can talk about that. And for those who don't know, there's a dual degree program, um, an MA in applied anthropology and a master's in public health and whatever concentration you choose to do that in. And actually, all three of us have different or different concentrations. Right. Yeah, when I hear the MA, so it's like a Master of, of Arts, and so I like to think of, of that as a, yeah, when you conclude that, you're, you, you're now a Master Artist. <laughs> Are you aspiring to be a Master Artist? <laughs> that's, that's what I'm hoping for, Donna. Oh, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> I always wanted to be an artist. I was just terrible at drawing, so I went into social studies instead. There you go. So your concentration in... Um, applied anthropology. Are you cultural or are you medical? I'm medical. Medical, okay. And then in public health, your concentration is? I'm in public health education. Okay. So uh, why don't you talk a little bit about your experience in the MA and PH program and then um, what you plan to do after you graduate, what you want to do if you don't know, if you know, what, what do you got going on? All right. Um, I did my BA here at USF and I applied to a couple places and got into USF and they offered me a TA ship. Did you do your BA in anthropology? I did. Okay. Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> and then I did the application for here for the master's program and I saw it was an option to have the MA MPH and I thought, God no, I'm not doing that. I'm tired of this work. Mm. And then of course in the first semester they told me at very just at orientation, you know, you can still apply to the MA MPH program. And I, at that point, like half the people I'd met were in the MA MPH program, and I thought, okay, this is probably a good idea. Yeah, it seems like a really popular thing to do. Yeah, yeah it seems like most of the medical anthropology students, yeah, uh, they're, they're in anthropology yeah. or, in fact, uh, in mm -hmm. that dual program. Mm -hmm. Which was good for me because about halfway through my first year, uh, I hit this point where looking at medical anthropology and I love medical anthropology but at some point you start to feel like you're not actually doing anything to mm. help people yeah because it's all theoretical totally yeah theoretical. let's get yeah. a little critical now yeah uh, it's a great thing but yeah. I mean I know people who have dropped out and become nurses mm. just because they need to actually do something on the ground mm -hmm. and I think being in the MPH program is a great solution for that because then you do actually get to talk about policy and influence policy mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. How do you how do you think that your anthropology training will help you in that regard? Um, I that's a great question. A big question. Yeah. Big yeah. question. It's a good question. Uh, I hope that it helps me uh, because I have a greater background in diversity and talking to people. So public health sometimes you can get bogged down in the numbers, mm. which are important but you maybe don't go out in the field and ask people what do you want mm. what do you need mm -hmm. yeah just implementing interventions that you assume people want or need yeah and then they fail and people are like why did this fail this was designed perfectly look at all this data we had which is common. yeah it can be rather paternalistic Mm -hmm. Which is uh, one of my favorite terms. That's our word of the week, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Journalistic. Uh, New segment on the show. <laughs> word of the day. 
Oh, you should always have word of the week. Well, dictionary.com, word of the day. All right. We got a little, got a little side check. <laughs> a little side check there. So um, you're talking about policy and, and um, you know, uh, using anthropology in public health intervention and implementation, which is something I'm actually really uh, interested in myself. So do you plan on staying in the fields of sexual education and, and sexual health, reproductive health, when you graduate? Is that something you aspire to That would to stay be in? my first and truest love. That's where I would like to stay. Okay. I really would like to see better, more comprehensive sex education in our schools. Okay. So where do you, where do you see yourself? Like, What kind of position do you see yourself in? I don't know exactly at this point, but... Um, Definitely working with the government, I think. I love NGOs, okay. but I think I'd have more direct influence in a government position. Okay. What, what is an NGO? An NGO is a non-governmental organization. Which a lot of anthropologists end up in. I feel like a lot of anthropologists end up in NGOs. Well, I'm working for one right now in my internship. Oh, well, there you, you go. You know, there are only two types of organizations, governmental and non-governmental. <laughs> so you just got to pick one. Yeah. <laughs> very, very dichotomous. Yeah, that's true. So, uh, PhD. What do you What do you think about that? Mm. When I started this program, I thought, of course, I'm going to get my PhD, and I thought, well, I have to because that's what you do in anthropology. If you have a master's in anthropology, there are definitely things you can do, mm -hmm. but it's encouraged to get the PhD. Yeah. And now, of course, I'm like three and a half, four years in, and I'm starting to feel the stretch. Yeah. So I would like to come back for my PhD, but I think I'm definitely going to have to take a couple of years off. Work and I think that that's another useful part of adding the MPH is mm. that I think it makes me more marketable, and I think it is perhaps easier to get a public health job with an MPH rather than a PhD. Yeah, we've talked about this previously on the show. Just the you know people knowing what anthropology is and knowing what skills are wrapped up in an MA in anthropology versus an MPH, which is a professional degree. You know, everybody, everybody knows what that, what mm -hmm. that is and, and how it's marketable and how it's used in, in public health. And just you, the way that that, you know, boosts your credentials is just pretty significant. And with that, we're going to wrap up the show this week. Um, I think Renee is going to close us out with a message from our sponsors and we will see you next week yes and these sponsors these are these are public service announcements we are spencer and i are not paid for this show in any way in fact um we probably end up having to pay to be here i don't know we, we pay tuition i'm sure we do in some oh, way yeah. Yeah. yeah anyway uh okay have you have you ever wanted to go to the usf botanical gardens donna do, do you oh i do all the time i was there this morning there you go um but you didn't know what to do there connect with the Botanical Gardens Club, and we will show you the way. The Botanical Gardens Club volunteers at the gardens, grows vegetables each semester, and has recyclable arts and crafts projects. If you can't make it to any of those exciting events, come to our monthly socials. Join us on Bullsync and Facebook, or email usfbgc at gmail.com to receive updates on all of our events, and have you ever used the water bottle filler that it's available around campus, Spencer? I do all the time. Cool. Well, did you know that this system was a project started by a student organization? We are Enactus, spelled E-N-A-C-T-U-S. 
and we are student leaders who use business concepts to develop projects that help improve the community. Being an Enactus will help you get involved, develop relevant skills, and directly impact the community. To learn more about us, please visit enactususf.wordpress.com. We welcome students from any major and year. And you've spent the last 50-odd minutes listening to Anthro Alert Live on Bulls Radio, WUSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa, 1620 AM on campus, and streaming worldwide at bullsradio.org. We'll see you next week.